You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose No Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. And now, here's Jay. afternoon and welcome to another edition of the Bose Nose Show as I'm trying to do two things at once because I got on the air just a little bit late today. Nothing like getting distracted by trying to do an audit for your wife's business on her workman's comp uh, insurer type thing. Just one of the minor things I do now and then helping my wife out with her business. Um, kind of got preoccupied and almost missed the show. Uh, but we have got a busy show for the Bose Nose Show, and uh, I'm your host, Westland County Jay Bozovich, Westland County Commissioner Jay Bozovich, and we are coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, where all of a sudden it's gorgeous outside. It's like Mother Nature is, is definitely, you know, going crazy on us the last day or so here out in, out in the Pacific Northwest snow and rain and wind lost a big tree in my yard last week and and yeah it's just crazy stuff and now it's beautiful (laughs) like they say in oregon in the springtime don't like the weather wait five minutes and another season will come around all four seasons in the same day Uh, that's what we're known for so there's so much to talk about today. Content-filled board meeting yesterday, all sorts of things going on in the news. Um, you know, it's just lots to talk about. But I do want to get to your phone calls. Um, and, you know, the easiest way to do that is just to give us a call here at our uh, Caribbean Internet News Talk Radio uh, show at 646-721-9887. Don't forget to press 1 because that raises your little hand icon. used to be a question mark. Now they've changed it to a hand icon um, on our on our board there. So we know you want to talk because we have people that actually call in that just want to listen to the show. Um, so don't, you know, so 646-721-9887. Just press 1. And that lets us know you want to get in on the show. I'm trying to log in right now so I can see who's on on the board. So if you see me looking up to my right a little bit, it's because I've got two screens here. The one with the camera, and i got the one with the, uh, the board up on it so I can see what's going on. And as soon as I get the board up, make sure we don't have people waiting to jump in here. Because I've got one topic I know people are dying to talk about a little bit. That was poor phrasing. But Highway 126 is, you know, raising its ugly head again of, of being one of the most deadly highways uh, in Lane County in Oregon. Um, just another horrific accident. Another person 
you know, trying to emulate the Fast and the Furious or something like that and decided to pass on a blind curve, 18-year-old kid, and uh, ran head-on into a pickup truck in his little um, Nissan or whatever he was driving, little sedan, and uh, pickup truck wins. <laughs> and uh, he is no longer with us. So great. I've got a... Not only is Mother Nature going crazy, I've got the insect world flying around in here. Hopefully it's, yeah, it's just a fly. It's not a bee. <laughs> uh, I guess distractions galore here on the Bose Nose Show. Um, but, you know, we'll be talking maybe a little bit about Highway 126. What's it going to take for people to start driving with some sanity? I mean, uh, that Robin and I, a couple minutes we had before the show, we're talking about needing sanity in the world because it just seems like things are going crazy. And, of course, you know, you want to talk about crazy? Let's talk about banning natural gas and, and use in, in homes and businesses and, building, and buildings. You know, it's like that's the big new thing is we're going to electrify buildings. Now, you know, this is not cars. You know, because the president wants us all to get an electric car because supposedly we'll save 80 bucks a month. Of course, he's not looking at the long-term cost of owning an electric vehicle and the fact that most states charge more for registration because they don't get the gas tax out of them. (laughs) And um, quite often they're more expensive, so they're higher insurance costs and everything else that goes with them. Uh, Actually, by the time you work it out, that 80 bucks is gone. (laughs) Not to mention, you know, if you don't want to spend 40 hours recharging from a 110 circuit or something like that, you've got to put in a quick charger in your house, which is a couple thousand dollar installation. Um, But kind of why I have, you know, I'm wearing this shirt today because I sort of got in one of those moods where, you know, it's dogs and camping make me happy. And, you know, there's the, the, the Airstream, the COVID capsule on there, dogs and all that stuff, but humans make my head hurt because <laughs> they just seem to. I, it just, it's beyond me that, that rational people are trying to ban natural gas. As natural gas is also starting to convert to more and more what they call renewable natural gas, which is basically just biogenerated natural gas instead of um, drill into the ground and get old biogenerated natural gas. <laughs> um, it, that's you know the only difference between the two somewhat. Uh, there's it's still natural gas, but the bio natural gas is being recovered from basically rotting organic materials of one form or another. And in fact, we just celebrated the grand opening of the connection between our local sewage treatment plant, you know, Metropolitan Waste Management um, Administration here locally, that's the combination of Eugene Springfield, Lane County, um, that treats all the sewage from Eugene Springfield area, is connecting their methane recovery system because they've got scrubbers on it now that make it clean enough to put into Northwest Naturals pipeline system. So there's now a direct connection between, you know, when you flush it, you'll be burning it in your fireplace or your water heater soon. (laughs) No smell, you know, other than the rotten egg smell they put in the the natural gas so you know when there's a leak. 
Um, but you know, that's, you know, talk about recycling. Um, there you go. <laughs> and hopefully we'll be able to do the same thing from our landfills and uh, we'll be able to set up digester plants for food waste and um, animal waste, et cetera, where, you know, we can do some scrubbing of that gas and get it clean enough, put it in the pipelines and people can be using it in their homes. Very low carbon footprint when you're doing that because normally that stuff would just vent into the air and methane is so much worse as a greenhouse gas than CO2 is. So that said, you know, we're starting to move towards this renewable natural gas and all that stuff. What people really don't understand is, you know, natural gas is used mostly for hot water heating, cooking, and household heating. The majority of the BTUs are in household heat on winter mornings. That's the big demand on the system. It's also the biggest demand on our electric grid at the same peak time that usage of electricity jumps incredibly. And what you have to have in the electric grid, if you don't put the same amount of amps into the system that somebody's drawing out, you know, you're going to have a, a, you know, a in, imbalance and destabilize the system and you get undercurrent, overcurrent situations. And that is those type things that cause things to trip in the grid and cause blackouts. Um, so you have to continually be balancing these, you know, utilities are continually, continually balancing load used, load generated, you know, how much they're putting in and all that stuff. And when you have these sharp peaks in the morning and evening in the wintertime, they have to have something they can spin up and put on into the grid quickly. And generally that's done by thermal generation of some kind, i.e. burning something. Natural gas most com is becoming the most common form of that. There's still some oil fire plants around the country, but in the Pacific Northwest, we still have coal generation. We're taking them offline, which is one of the reasons why our grid's getting less and less stable. But, you know, that's, you know, that peak hour, a lot of the electricity that's being used is not coming from the hydroelectric dams. It's not coming from wind and solar, particularly in the morning on a cold winter day, because days are pretty short in the Pacific Northwest. So 6 a.m. in the morning in December, there is no sun. So there's no solar. And generally those really cold, high peak days are the same days were foggy and cloudy. <laughs> and that means there's no wind blowing that fog out of the valley and those, we get those cold inversions that create the demand. So there's no wind power coming out. So the only thing they've got to spin up is that thermal generated power. And that's where you see, you know, it, we're burning that to put it into the electric grid and then we're heating homes with it. Now, that conversion from natural gas in, in a electrical generation plant through the transmission lines 
and then into your home and then converted to heat energy, the efficiency is about 30%. Now, if you have natural gas being pumped into a pipeline system coming through your gas meter and then you're burning it in your home for heat, the total efficiency, including all the, the, the pump stations and pressures, you know, pressurization and everything else that goes into a natural gas system, the heat efficiency in your home is 90%. So if you convert a home from gas to electricity during that peak hour when we're having to pull thermal energy into the grid, for that peak hour, you're actually generating three times more carbon output using electricity. Does that make sense? You know, all you folks that really care about the environment, which is better? Burning three times more natural gas at an electrical generation plant or burning a third less in your home? And, and, you know, that doesn't even get into the whole issue of we are destabilizing as we, quote, decarbonize our electric grid and they're shutting down coal plants and they're plant, you know, they've, they've got a schedule when they're, they're shutting off these, you know, thousands of megawatts of generating capacity. And they're, you know, they're not really replacing them. There's not permitted enough generating capacity coming online that the loss of load probability is continually increasing in the Northwest. You know, they had put out a report that showed it was increasing to 33% eventually, but that, you know, made everybody, you know, put, you know, there's a lot of political pressure because they put that report out there and all of a sudden people were citing that report as to why we had to be careful about green energy, et cetera. So they made a bunch of assumptions and changed the report the following year. So it's only 17% chance of blackouts now. The standard for acceptable reliability in electric grids is 5%. So we're going to be at 17% chance of you suddenly not having any heat or lights or if you're on oxygen or whatever else, you know, you know, medical equipment you might depend on in your home if, if you're a person that depends on electrical medical equipment, um, gone. 17% chance in the, in, in the very near future. This isn't like, you know, 30, 40 years out. This is five to 10 years out as they, as they take these coal-fired plants offline without what they call effective power to replace them reliable, spinnable power where they can call on it when they need it. Not when the sun's shining or the wind's blowing or there's enough water coming over the dams and they're not having to restrict it because of some Endangered Species Act concerns. This is power that you know you can count on, that, that we're, we're taking off the grid right now and it's not there's not permitting to replace it yet. And everyone says, well, sooner or later, the battery technology will be there and we'll be able to store this, you know, electrical energy that will generate, you know, excess stuff we can generate with solar and and wind and then put it in. It's not there at the grid level yet. It might be there for 
campus of a couple buildings or something like that, but it is not there at grid level. And then when people start talking, well, we're going to go to microgrids. If you think it's difficult to balance a large grid, demand versus generation, can you imagine, you know, little small communities trying to do that on a constant basis? There's a reason utilities, you know, large utilities seem to be, you know, efficient and effective because they can afford what it takes to do everything they need to do, keeping their infrastructure up, having the staff to, to make those decisions and, and you know, keeping all their equipment up to, up to date so that the throwovers and all that happen well, um, you know, you get that smaller and smaller and suddenly it doesn't get maintained. There's not the staff there that's professional. You, don't, you can't afford the staff that's professional enough to do all that, that work. And you're going to, yeah, you might be at microgrids, but you're going to have a reliability, you know, loss of load probability is going to be over 50% probably with some of these, these microgrids. It just, I, I, it's scary what people don't understand about our electrical grid system or even large utilities and what it takes to run a utility, whether it's an electric system, a sewer system, or a water system. People just don't understand. And staying on the topic of gas, and I'll remind folks one more time, we are a call-in show. I know I had a little bit of a rough start here, but 646-721-9887. Don't forget, forget to press 1. So we know we want, you know, that put your little hand up on the board. You want to get in here and talk about any of the topics I threw up there on my Facebook post or any other topic you want. If it's something, you know, not on that list, we'll talk about it if you call us. You know, it's your opportunity to call in and talk to a local elected official. And even if you're not from Lane County, even if you're not from the state of Oregon, I can provide some insights into government that maybe some other people can't from the point of view of an elected official and also from the point of view of having worked in local government as a civil engineer. So give us a call. Lots of topics we can talk about. Of course, I, you know, I pontificate about all sorts of stuff, which gets me to another gas topic. And, and you know, some people may have been, you know, giggled a little bit about the show promo, and, and uh, <laughs> but we were talking about methane and natural gas. Um, but this one's more of the uh, refined oil-type gasoline and our president and inflation and all that stuff, which I, I, I will take any caller that wants to argue with me that we weren't already in an inflationary spiral prior to Ukraine and, and, and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And that the major cause of that inflationary spiral is not the supply chain issues of COVID, it's the expansion of the supply of U.S. dollars into our economy. Trillions of new U.S. dollars have been pumped into the world economy. When there's a larger supply of something, it makes it less valuable. 
which means inflation. So understanding that basic what's driving inflation, our president thinks that somehow or another, devaluing the dollar even further by releasing gasoline from our reserves, which you know is part of what the U.S. dollar is partially based on the assets of the U.S. government and, and our our you know our strategic mineral and and petroleum reserves are part of that value of the dollar in some ways. But when you releasing that out into the economy is just almost the same thing as pumping dollars into it. It's just another way of putting us into further deficit because eventually we're going to have to replace that. But, you know, it, that, that's not really, you know, it's sort of a temporary fix in a way, but in the long run, you're actually doing the same thing that caused the inflation in the first place. And then on top of that, now he's going to let there be more ethanol in our gasoline. So we're going to burn food, which is currently, you know, got eight and a half percent inflation rate <laughs> in our gas tanks to avoid burning gasoline. You know, it, and mind you, it takes one unit of energy to produce two units of energy with ethanol. So there's actually a consumption of petroleum products that goes into producing the corn and refining it and making the ethanol, whether it's the tractors that plow the fields or the natural gas that fires the plants that make the nitrogen fertilizers, there's a lot of energy that goes into growing corn, which normally people eat, livestock eats, and we eat the livestock or the livestock's products like dairy products. But no, we are now going to take that and and convert it into ethanol and and increase the amount of ethanol going into the gasoline system which some older cars don't tolerate well and it lowers the performance of your, of your vehicle because ethanol doesn't burn as efficiently as gasoline um, you get less power out of higher ethanol a gallon of higher ethanol content gasoline than straight gasoline um, you know or even lower ethanol so I, I'm just like, really? <laughs> this is the solution, and and we're and we're calling it the you know the Putin infl- you know Putin price increases now the new term that president's using. It's like what part of we were at seven percent inflation before the the war started even, and how much of this is actually Ukraine driven at this time? Seeing we don't really you know, have a lot of of trade from that area versus how much of it is still being driven by the oversupply of U.S. dollars into into the money system, monetary system of the world. You know, from the COVID, you know, the COVID relief checks, which started under Trump, so I'm not completely blaming this administration, this, this, Expansion of the money supply started under the Trump administration, but it's gone crazy since our current president took office, and his solutions are let's pump more money in the form of our petroleum reserves out into the economy, and then let's burn some of our food, which is 
already going getting expensive in our gas tanks instead of making food with it. By the way, it also takes three gallons of water for every one gallon of ethanol produced. Not exactly a green product in a lot of ways. So, you know, it just, you know, dogs and camping make me happy. Humans make my head hurt. You know, when I, you know, I explained, you know, the issue of peak energy, you know, peak hour energy usage to our commissioners before we voted on our climate action plan, which included this push for electrification. The city of Eugene's going even one step further where they're going to ban, they're potentially going to ban any new natural gas infrastructure in the city so that any new house built or apartment or new restaurant can't choose to have natural gas in it to absolute insanity. Um, it just, you know, I don't understand, you know, need to virtue signal by passing these plans and the junk science is referenced in a lot of it. You know, one of the things was there was a reference to a Stanford study on indoor air quality from natural gas stoves that was completely bogus and actually took just, you know, five malfunctioning stoves out of a sampling of 50 some stoves and chose to draw all their conclusions based on the five. Also not understanding that building code requires ventilation of any cook of any cooktop, whether it's electric or gas, and that a lot of the pollutants from cooking are actually not from whether it's electric or gas, it's from the actual food being cooked. The particulate matter that's discharged in the air, that's why they require vents. It's, you want to know one of the worst offenders for indoor air quality? Toasters and toaster ovens, because they're not vented. You want to know really one of the really horrible ones? You know those mini split, you know, air conditioning systems? In the summertime, they grow mold really well. We all know what mold does to indoor air quality. So, you know, it's like, we're going to talk indoor air quality. Let's talk about indoor air quality and the whole thing. But they want to try and, you know, they want to try and scare you. It's all about scare, scare, scare. And this Stanford study was done so poorly and was such a scare tactic, but it was done at the behest of climate activists with the purpose of having something they could point to to say natural gas, bad. Yeah, it's just, yeah. Gosh. People. Ah, So maybe I should stop talking about gas. (laughs) I seem to be proficient in generating it myself. At least my wife thinks so. All right, we won't go there. Uh, Let's talk about something else. How about fires? Oh, my. Which, you know, I like to point out to people, and, you know, I, I've mentioned this before, 
And of course, it's gotten really hard to find on the internet now. But uh, if you're watching the Bose Nose Show by Facebook Live, you can kind of see a graph I'm holding up there, and there's these orange bars. And it's a timeline. And it starts at 1911 on this end, and it ends at 2017 on this end. You know, this is, this is a little bit old. I've had to hang on to it. Um, so, yes, there have been higher years than this in the last couple of years. But the idea that somehow or another, you know, the, the amount of acres burned in Oregon is somehow a, a, an unusual event ignores history. If people want to just, a lot of times when these graphs are shown, they, they, they start from here. Where's here? Oh, it's the late 60s, early 70s, when people thought we were going into an ice age. Remember the articles that were in Time Magazine, danger of ice age and all that stuff. People love to start climate graphs at 1970 for just that reason, because we've been warming up since then, because we had a little mini period of cooling. But it misses the fact that back in the 30s, in the 30s, yes, that's where that is, were things like the Tillamook Burn, which the only reason the Tillamook Burn ended was it reached the Pacific Ocean. It was an east wind event, almost exactly like our Labor Day fires of 2020. That heavy, dry, hot east wind happens every 80 to 100 years in cycles in the Pacific Northwest. As you talk about, you know, to, to people that actually do forest science and all that stuff, they'll tell you that, you know, the, the coast range has regeneration um, forest fires uh, at a certain time period and the, and the cascades, the, the um, Western slopes, the wet slopes of the Cascades have a, a little bit different time period, but they naturally burn every once in a while. And what they, and what they call regen burn, where it's a complete burnover. But those burns happen in cycles a lot of times. But getting to the holiday farm fire, the issue there so isn't so much what caused the fire and why and all that stuff and how it, whether it's tied to climate or not. Right now, it's about how are we doing in the recovery process. And it seems like everybody wanted to pat themselves on the back yesterday because we have actually issued permits for about 33% of the dwellings that were burned and lost in the Holiday Farm Fire. 191 permits issued out of the 574 dwellings lost, which, by the way, is a bigger number than we originally estimated, partly because we've done a much more careful survey um, of the, you know, what actually got burned. Because when we, they first went up there, there's, you know, the maps they took with them were, the, you know, the, the, they sent people that weren't familiar with the area. There wasn't addressing information that, you know, all the signs and Mailboxes got burnt. <laughs> you know? 
So they really didn't do a very good job of, of identifying uh, how many dwellings had actually been lost. And we've updated that to 574, which is about 100 more than we originally estimated. But 33%. Marion County, meanwhile, and Marion County, the fire they had there burned areas that were actually inside some city limits. So it's kind of a mix of incorporated areas that got burned and unincorporated. And I like to compare with the unincorporated because the incorporated, then you're also de dealing with whatever the city permit codes are and, and zoning issues being inside a city. Where outside, we're all under the same rules by the way state land use law works, et cetera. Marion County, in their unincorporated areas, have issued 62% of their permit, of their houses lost. They've issued 172 out of 279. So we're basically about half the replacement rate. Not sure why, couldn't tell you why, what, why the difference is there, um, but um, we shouldn't be cheering yet. We still got a lot of people in uh, hotels. We have about 90 people, 88, 90 people still in hotels, sheltering hotels. That does not count people that are living with other family and friends. Um, you know, that's, you know, that's still a lot of people. This happened in September of 2020. We are now in April of 2022, more than a year and a half later, and we still have people sheltering in hotels. Now on top of that, it was kind of interesting. You know, they showed a picture of um, a modular home that was being built uh, for, uh, housing upriver and it's going in, um, they're going to go in as part of a Homes for Good um, housing project where they took over an old uh, mobile home park and they're going to be putting in these modular homes. And modular homes are a little bit different from manufactured homes in that they're built to building code, you know, with the two by six walls um, that are required. And, and they basically, once they're fixed to a foundation, have the same code requirements and everything and meet all the code requirements as a stick-built home. Manufactured homes are built to a HUD standard that's a little bit lower than building code standards. Two by four walls, a little bit less insulation, and some of the other requirements have been lowered to make them, you know, basically, you know, where you can pick them up and put them on a foundation and then pick them up and move them, supposedly. <laughs> Yeah, these manufactured home parts. But these modular homes are being built in Idaho. And someone asked the question, you know, why are we buying these from Idaho? You know, why aren't we building them here in Oregon? And it's a good question because we do have manufactured housing, you know, uh, producers here in Oregon. There just aren't any modular producers. And you you wonder why, and part of it is you have to convert the, the, the production line to this 
you know, higher code levels. And there's an investment in doing that. Hi, Louie. The poodles have shown up. <laughs> That's Louie squeaking in the background. Um, and uh, I have to think about why would these only, you know, why would this facility be in Idaho? Well, think about what's happened over the last several years since Oregon passed the corporate activities tax. That 1% tax on gross receipts over a million dollars that is basically a value-added tax and a hidden sales tax on Oregonians. A lot of manufacturing has moved out of the state. A lot of businesses have moved out of the state. And the incentive to invest in a business here has been decreasing as we continually to pile on regulation, including the governor's climate protection plan that she's put in place by executive order rather than legislative action. So we're buying modular homes for people that lost their homes in the holiday farm fire from Idaho for people here in Oregon. Does that make sense? I don't think so. But, you know, I, you know, I just wish and I'm, I'm hoping maybe there's going to be some change, you know, Maybe we get a Betsy Johnson governor or something who kind of gets that stuff. Been a business person, run a business for a long time, understands what makes business go. Yeah, we all can't work for nonprofits that are doing government contracting. That eventually becomes circular and fails. There's got to be businesses. And if you're chasing them out of the state with a high income tax rate and an additional corporate activities tax, which is one of the reasons why Bymark closed their pharmacies, but that's a, I, I've talked about that before. But, you know, that's why we're buying modular homes from Idaho for fire victims in Oregon. Ah. So we also talked about some other things at the board meeting. Like I said, it was a content-heavy meeting yesterday, including passing a raise for our county administrator. But you know, I, I didn't even put that in the topics today. But we also talked, and, and the board went ahead, you know, against my wishes. By the way, I voted against the climate action plan phase two. I was the only one that did. Of course, I'm also the only commissioner that has a degree in science. Um, and a 4-1 vote there. And there was a 4-1 vote on this community benefits bidding expansion. And they tried to justify it by showing that the, the architect's estimates for several projects were actually higher than where the bids came in under the, you know, using this community benefits bidding thing. And I've asked a question in the past, did you bid project also without the community benefits and compared the two? 
because that's the only way you're going to know if you're spending more money on the community benefits. The fact that you came in under the estimate only means the architect missed the estimate. Was padding his estimate because he didn't want to have the, the bids come in over his estimate. Has nothing to do whether or not the community benefits program is actually costing taxpayers more money to build buildings and do capital projects for the citizens of Lane County. And we know it has to cost more because we're asking for, for the bidders to do more and requiring more of them. Whether it's mandatory um, apprenticeship programs that we're requiring them to, to, to do, or it's requiring higher levels of health insurance uh, coverages and other things that we're requiring as far as limiting their ability to um, take bids from subcontractors that are out of the area, trying to prioritize, quote, local. You know, it just means when you limit the amount of bidders, you get higher prices. It's just a natural thing. When you make more requirements, they have to pay for those requirements in the price of the project. And the board chose to expand that by lowering the total dollar amount of contracts that are going to be required to go through this process. So now Lane County, instead of having a $1 million threshold to use that's been this process is being forced on, it's now half million. So almost every project we do is going to have to go through this community benefits process. Costing you, the taxpayer, more money for capital projects that might have been able to be invested in services or doing more capital projects. You know, because this building's costing more from community benefits bidding process, we may not get to doing an improvement on that building and that service over there that can't expand. It has an impact. And then this whole idea of, you know, the, the real idea behind community benefits is you're going to bid, you know, you're going to prioritize local bidders over out-of-area bidders and local sourcing and all this stuff. There was a day and an age where our economies were like that. It was the Middle Ages where, you know, everything came from within 20 miles of your village because that was about how far you could get with a horse-drawn cart in a single day. No refrigeration, no long, you know, transports and stuff like that. Almost everything came from the farms, you know, within a few miles of your village. And occasionally stuff came from a village over or something like that. Well, you know what? Those weren't exactly the best of times, were they? We start balkanizing our, our economy like that, saying, you know what, everything's got to be local, got to be local, got to be local, 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 local. And next thing you know, economy stinks because there needs to be exchange further than that. You can't survive off of a balkanized area. You can't then have, you know, specialization of labor or you know, all sorts of things that happen when you try and get that, you know, keep compressing geographically to a smaller and smaller economy. But 
That all said, the board moved ahead with it. And in addition, they are adding requirements for equity and, and um, oh, God, how they put it, um, social justice, basically, where they're going to try and make it, you know, set asides for various um, minority or women-owned or whatever businesses. My objection to that is why do we keep subdividing humanity? We're all humans. And, and this continually focused on trying to divide us in ways leads to things like a Supreme Court justice nominee not being willing to define a man or a woman or a woman and particularly making that that ridiculous statement saying that she's not a biologist so she couldn't tell you what a woman was because you start trying to, to to group people on one particular characteristic and there's always exceptions and always problems with that grouping and they're not all women aren't alike all people of African-American descent, you know, with dark skin color aren't alike. People that speak Spanish as their first language are not all alike. But we keep wanting to try and divide people by these groups and then place them in them. Sexual orientation, gender identity, whatever. And because you start trying to develop a category, you're going to misidentify people, miss, you know, place them as far as which group they belong in, or they don't really belong in that group at all, really. Or they cross over between multiple groups. It's just, it's ridiculous to try and divide us. Because when you get right down to it, our DNA is so similar in almost every way. Because we're humans. Stop trying to divide us. And particularly don't be starting to divide us in how you're going to give out contracts. That only leads to discrimination of some kind. And it leads to ridiculous statements like, I'm not a biologist. Uh, but moving on, now that we've decided we're, you know, going to, you know, create a higher carbon footprint and destabilize our electric grid by approving that climate action plan, pat ourselves on the back for an unsuccessful recovery from the holiday farm fire, and then move forward with costing taxpayers more money for you know, really no benefit and, and, and trying to divide us into smaller groups and pit us against each other. You know, it's just, it's amazing sometimes, you know, that's what we did. And we even, you know, that doesn't even get to the fact that, you know, we did give a raise to our county administrator who, you know, by market shows he needs one, and he's one of the best we've, we've ever had in Lane County and is probably one of the best in the country. 
So I don't deny him that raise. Just Tommy may not be the best to be giving somebody a 5% raise that makes 200000 a year. Um, yeah, so it's just what was a little concern of mine. And at the same time, we also raised our trash um, tipping fees about 3.5% um, yesterday. So be prepared, folks. We're helping. We're helping with that inflation stuff. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Um, through regulation, we're going to re- require higher pricing of things. Um, but I want to move on. You know, from the board meeting, I want to talk about Highway 126 a little bit because this is something I've been involved in almost since the first day of being a commissioner. In fact, I was actually even involved in a little bit beforehand as the Highway 126 um, corridor study was was being done as I was running for commissioner and was finalized shortly thereafter. And that corridor study was between Benita and Eugene and had little to do with the rest of the, some of the most dangerous parts of Highway 126. But, you know, at that focus of that study was, and believe me, the, the section between Eugene and Benita is not exactly safe either. There's been plenty of fatalities there. In fact, one just recently there in, in near Green Hill Road. Um, that said, you know, we worked on that plan and, and got it more or less ready and, and has been moving slowly through the federal processes because um, it's going to require federal funding to, to to make the improvements needed to make that corridor safe. And you have to go through the National Environmental Protection Act um, environmental assessments um, that are required if you're going to accept any federal um, transportation dollars, which part of ODOT's funding is federal money. So um, it's been a long, slow process, you know, from 2010 till you know, here we are, 2022, and, you know, the only thing that's really happened between here and Eugene has been some spot improvements that I pushed for, and I'd have to give um, credit where credit is due. Representative Paul Hovey and Senator Floyd Prozanski both supported the efforts to set aside funding um, in some uh, legislation that got those spot improvements done, and in, in addition to some other improvements um, between Benita and Mapleton. Um, and then it wasn't too long after I was in office, there was a year where we had 10 fatalities um, on Highway 126 between uh, Eugene and Mapleton in a period of 12 months. And it was at kind of the conclusion of that horrible 12 months, I with the help of uh, Franny Brindle at ODOT, formed a Highway 126 Safety Task Force, where we um, pulled together a group of people and asked them to meet regularly for a while to talk about what can we do to make Highway 126 safer. What, what, you know, let's look at what the problems are. Let's talk about strategies and let's kind of try and develop a plan. And that task force included. Um, command level folks from Oregon State Police, 
included representatives of Lane County Sheriff's Office, included representatives from Lane Fire Authority, um, you know, the, the ambulance and fire rescue folks that respond to the accidents, um, people from ODOT Engineering to talk about, you know, road design. It had folks from ODOT Road, you know, Traffic Safety um, that had the, all the statistics around crashes and causes and data for year, years going back. Um, for that roadway, we had folks from the city of Benita. We had somebody from the Mapleton School District. Um, we had folks from the city of Florence on that task force um, because 126 is such a critical uh, economic um, corridor for the coast there. Um, it was, you know, a group of about 15 or so people with from government to citizens um, that got together and, and you know, went through years of data on on crash you know fatal crashes and um, severe injury crashes for that corridor and you know 95 plus percent of those fatal and high injury crashes were lane departures so you think about what causes a lane departure when somebody leaves their lane of travel either off the shoulder of the road and hits a tree or crosses the center line and has a head on. When you leave your lane, there's usually something that causes that and it's driver behavior. Almost no amount of engineering fixes can fix some of the things that cause those lane departures. Excessive speed, driving too fast for the weather conditions, driving while under the influence of an intoxicant, driving drowsy and sleepy, texting. All of those things are the driver's behavior and decisions the driver made. Whether a curve has a guardrail or not, isn't going to change that driver behavior that makes them leave the road in the first place. I mean, there's some things that can help with some of that, yeah, which we, we did put in place as we went through the repaving projects uh, and phases across that whole stretch of road. We put centerline rumble strips in to try and wipe people up when they start to have that lane departure. We tried to widen the shoulders wherever we could so that, you know, there's more of a chance of recovery, you know, so a lane departure may not, can, you know, necessarily result in an accident. Um, and we actually got money for an additional passing lane there west of Walton, and we actually did some improvements over uh, Badger Mountain more recently with the curvature there. But engineering is only part of resolving this issue. Probably the biggest thing that changes driver behaviors, education helps. So, you know, we also invested in rural driver's ed and, and the county with the help of some grants is actually subsidizing driver's ed programs in Mapleton and, and uh, the Fern Ridge school districts and some other areas, uh, you know, to, to help with that. Real issue, you know, they talk about the four E's when they're talking about traffic safety. And 
you know, engineering and trying to make the roads safer is part of it. Education and getting people to understand, you know, what bad driving behaviors, but, you know, how many times have you heard an ad about don't text and drive, don't drink and drive? <laughs> it only goes so far before it becomes noise. Emergency response is important to survival after a crash and having adequate emergency response. We're pretty dang good on that. You know, we've got aerial ambulances available to us on the whole corridor. We've got pretty good coverage <clears throat> of, of response. That's not really the issue. Enforcement, that fourth E, changes driver behavior. Believe it or not, you know, <clears throat> and studies have shown this, the stick seems to work better than the honey when it comes to changing people's behaviors. <laughs> It's an unfortunate thing, but it seems to work. Our problem is with the end of the timber funding coming into the, the timber-dependent counties like Lane County and Douglas County and several others, we've had to pull back on our patrol services because we're required to run a jail by law. We're not required to have even any patrol on, by, by law as a county. It's a non-mandatory service we provide, <laughs> law enforcement. I would never not do it, but Josephine County came damn close to not having any enforcement and, and only one or two jail cells at one point. They were so broke without the federal timber money. But when you have multiple southwestern Oregon counties with virtually no rural patrol by their sheriff's department, while at the same time, the state had steadily disinvested in the Oregon State Police, whose primary purpose is the safety of Oregon State Highways, which Highway 126 is one of them. But they went from 800 field patrol officers down to less than 400 at one point, as our population's growing. So you get this perfect storm of multiple counties with almost no coverage of traffic enforcement. People just got used to driving fast and doing stupid things with no consequence other than the ultimate consequence. That has to change. We have got to get our legislature to reinvest in the Oregon State Police. Got to find some way of getting our federal government to uphold the bargain they made with the counties when they took in trust the Oregon and California railroad lands and promised to harvest timber on those lands and provide the funding back to the counties to supply county services. Because the other choice was to sell them off as private property that we could tax. So as long as they're holding that, that those ONC lands under the 1934 ONC or 37 ONC Act, they should be producing timber. And if they're not, they should be paying us instead. They're busting the fiduciary requirements of a trustee. 
We have to fix that so we can put patrol officers out there, so we can have a traffic team again. But there's no way I am going to push our sheriff to put a traffic team out there doing nothing but writing tickets when I know it takes them 45 minutes average response time to get to an assault four call. Assault four, by the way, is strangulation, i.e. domestic violence, one of the most dangerous calls that we go out on and the one that has the most potential to go to escalate. 45 minutes. I'm not going to have somebody getting pulled over, you know, and getting a speeding ticket by a deputy that could be one of those responders. If I've got money for deputies, they're out there responding to crime. And our deputies right now, they go from one priority call to the next. They have very little chance to do traffic enforcement. So we've had years that disinvestment in county funding started in 2008 by the federal government. The drop in, in OSP patrol officers started just about 2005. Probably about, I guess, probably about 2003, I should say, because it was at, it's the post 9-11 um, budgets that started chopping OSP to pieces. So it's been years building this lack of enforcement, the biggest tool we have in the tool chest to change driver behavior and avoid those lane departure accidents. I've done everything I can to get funding to take care of the engineering fixes that we can do with these roadways. But we have got to change the culture of the drivers and the mindset of the drivers. And, you know, Hollywood, how many Fast and Furious movies were there that make it look like you can do whatever you want with a vehicle and, and, and walk away from, you know, horrendous car wrecks with hardly a scratch? That's what our kids were, you know, idolizing over the same decades where we had no enforcement on the roads. And we wonder why an 18-year-old thought it was a good idea to pass on a blind curve. We've got to change culture. Just like I talked about last week and I've talked about before, we've got to change the culture of how we treat law enforcement officers because they're so hard to recruit right now where we have to honor them like we honor our military veterans and, military and active military servicemen and women. We should be doing the same thing with our law enforcement officers. We've also got to change how we think in our society of somebody that texts and drives. That has to become so abhorrent. You know, should be one step above child molesters, you know, if you ask me in some ways. <laughs> we have to make people think of people that text and drive in that sort of derogatory manner. And I see Robin's just dying to jump in on this topic. What you got, Robin? Well, a couple of things. Um, going back to when people started driving stick shifts, they had to be in tune with the car and the road. And then as a study came out recently about all the protection and high-tech gadgets in the cars, they feel invincible that they can, like you said, they can do a flip in a car and walk away from it. Well, 
Um, that's really true now with a lot of the cars. In fact, some of the lighter cars to meet the EPA mandate, uh, I do see a lot of them with tires in the air. But I think that what may kind of help is uh, I used to be somewhat of a first responder in the fact that uh, I was first on scene on many accidents. I've assisted in over 250 uh, accidents and other issues with uh, way back in, in the days of CB assisting the police and LCSO. And if you actually saw in person even just the aftermath of what a vehicle can do to something, you know, 4,000-pound vehicle hitting something and um, and you look at the cab and you just go, oh, my God, did that person even survive that? It, it really wakes you up at just how dangerous these vehicles really are. And when people do something stupid on the road, you know, they're in a hurry to go nowhere. I mean, it's just – it's ridiculous. And so – Maybe having some of these people, first-time offenders, take a field trip to a junkyard. Yeah, well, there's, something has to change. But you know, the first-time offenders aren't even being pulled over now because we don't have the capacity to patrol our. Our, you know, I, I'm so happy that EPD is doing some saturation patrol on their section of 126. That's that's Green Hill Inn on West 11th, basically. It's right. not. It's not really going to impact a lot, but, you know, they've, they've at least got some capacity to do traffic enforcement. Well, something they did in North Dakota, of course, if they did that nowadays, it'd probably get stripped down. They took an old police car with a dummy sitting in the driver's seat and just sat on the side of the road. Yeah, and they, you know, and they, one of the things we talked about in that task force was, you know, decoy cars, signage about, you know, safety signage, you know, number of accidents, et cetera. Studies quickly show that unless the decoy cars moved regularly, and, and once people know there's a decoy car that gets put around there, it becomes completely ineffective after a short period of time. And signage, you know, number of deaths, you know, whatever, you know, since whatever date, you know, going up on a sign, that becomes noise. It's, it, yeah. There's already so much signage on the highway that people aren't even focusing on the signs they need to focus on, like stop ahead. <laughs> this curves 25 miles an hour. <laughs> Problem is, is that you're not going to engineer stupid out of the people. Yeah. Unless, unless you do like what they're doing overseas, where they're uh, actually making the new cars do the speed limit electronically. Yeah, well, the other thing they're doing overseas, which I don't know if I'm I'm advocating, but they have photo radar everywhere in Great Britain, everywhere. No one goes more than a couple miles over the speed limit unless they've got a big fat checkbook. <laughs> yeah, well, photo radar is not law enforcement. It's just a revenue thing. They got yeah. it in Portland. They can do it in Eugene, um, it, but they have to follow the regulations to do it. And I just hope we'd never get it. Yeah. And that doesn't change some things. Doesn't change uh, texting and driving. Doesn't change DUII uh, and some other issues. Um, I, the, the big thing is if there is enforcement out there, that changes behaviors. And, and, you know, one of the things is, you know, other countries, you have to wait till you're 18 to get your driver's license. Right. Some of them it's 21. 
You have to pay extra money to get it at 18. Well, I don't know if that would even help. I mean, if you ask some of the drivers nowadays, just how do, how do you uh, pull out of a, a skid, it's amazing how many people don't even know how to do that. Basic driving skills have kind of gone by the wayside. Yeah, do you turn into or away from a skid? Answers to that would be... <laughs> turn into. <laughs> exactly. Jay passes. Yes. Yes. I drove go-karts as a kid. I can drift. <laughs> exactly. Um, that, but, but driving used to be a skill. And yeah. now that it's doing everything for you, there's no skill. And like I said, the studies have shown that... Uh, Drivers are not knowing how to drive because their car does everything for them. Yeah. Well, I noticed that I have blown right through my normal hour, which is the miracle of doing blog talk radio and podcasting is we're not set by the clock. And, you know, if somebody called us a few minutes ago, we'd have taken the call and, and kept on going until we ended the conversation. But I think I'm going to let Robin get back to doing what she needs to do, and I need to feed a couple poodles that were in here pestering me a little while ago. So we'll be back next week with another edition of the Bo's Nose Show coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira. Have a great week. <laughs> <laughs>